I would imagine there's a certain air of confidence that comes with counting yourself among the biopharma companies in the flagship pioneering stable. Flagship is the builder of biotechs that played a lead hand in assembling a Whopper in Moderna. I don't know that the leaders over at Flagship would embrace the word kingmakers, but when you build a Moderna from zero to approval of one of the most important vaccines in history in just about a decade, people are going to talk. I'm Matt Piller. This is the Business of Biotech, and my guest on today's show is CEO of fellow flagship pioneering company, Ring Therapeutics. Ring is leveraging the human commensal virome to deliver redosable and targetable gene therapy in a way that we haven't seen before. It's developing human anelloviruses as a new class of gene therapy vector, building on their potential to overcome some of the challenges that have vexed gene therapy developers, those challenges including tropism, safety, immunogenicity, and redosing. Ring is a unique company with a unique leader. His story of resilience and odds beating began when he was a child, and we'll explore that story on today's episode. Suffice it to say, those who knew his early circumstances as a Vietnamese refugee probably wouldn't have placed their bets on Dr. Ong earning a UCL MD and quickly climbing the ranks at Pfizer, Bausch & Lomb, PTC Therapeutics, and Biogen before leading a promising and well-funded emerging biotech. But Tuan Ong did just that, and he's here with us today to talk about it. Dr. Ong, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Uh, and I want to, I want to, I want to start uh, kind of where we are today and work backwards a, a little bit. So, uh, you're CEO of Ring Therapeutics, as I mentioned. You're also, you also hold the title of CEO partner uh, at Flagship Pioneering, meaning you're one of the flagship pioneering uh, com- head of one of the flagship pioneering companies. Um, the VC that famously uh, gave Moderna its start. Um, and which led your $117 million Series B last summer. So I want you to sort of frame that up for us, clear it up for me, how uh, that came to pass, how you came to uh, become CEO at Ring. Thanks again for the invitation, Matt. Um, Maybe if I can start off with just um, an introduction about Ring. So as you mentioned, Ring was founded by Flagship Pioneering and really came out of Flagship Labs um, through an exploration on the human virome. So what we essentially asked was, what if there are viruses that live in and amongst us uh, that don't cause disease? Do they essentially exist? And can we essentially harness them for um, um, delivering therapeutics? It turns out that there's a family of viruses that are commensal. Um, These have co-evolved with us over millions of years and really established specific traits in regards to specific tissue tropism, as well as the ability to evade the immune system. So making them the ideal vector And so through my journey as um, a drug developer in the gene therapy space, it can be somewhat frustrating um, given some of the limitations and setbacks we've had in gene therapy. And so when I heard about ring therapeutics, I just instantly knew that this could potentially be transformative in so so many um, ways um, that, you know, we've never thought before in the gene therapy space. Mm -hmm. And you joined the company when? I joined in um, September 2020. 
2020. Okay. So if I'm looking at the time frame correctly here, and, I, and I'm curious, this is a kind of kind of off the cuff question, but as I alluded to the fact that flagship pioneering had a, a, a big hand in the Moderna uh, success of Moderna, Moderna was a was a 2010, I think, founding. 2011, uh, if I recall, yeah. That's... Right. So yeah, it's, so 2011. You ring uh, 2017. Correct. Um, and then you you jump on board in 2020. So be honest with me here, Twen. Is there any sense of like when when a when flagship has one of its children go ballistic the way that Moderna did? Uh, what how does that set the mood? Is there any sense of 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 you know new pressure? Uh, what does it kind of feel like as one of the you know, one of the companies under the flagship umbrella? Yeah, I think as sort of within the ecosystem, um, we, we call them our sister companies. And so obviously it inspires us. I think there's a great deal of respect in terms of what Moderna has achieved. I think more importantly, we all work in this field really to innovate therapeutics for patients, right? Given the pandemic, I think there's a huge sense of admiration in terms of what Moderna has achieved. I think that has only kind of garnered additional um, drive for us to do the same in a meaningful way in the gene therapy space. So it does set up a, a high bar for us. It does kind of create that sort of competition amongst the ecosystem companies, which again, I think we thrive under um, and definitely kind of creates the passion and energy within Ring to again, achieve what our sister company at Moderna have done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great. Great company to be in. Good, good elbows to rub for sure. Um, so getting back to you, you're a university of college, London MD, and uh, your ex- early experience coming out of, of school was on the clinical and medical operations side. Um, and then as I, as I mentioned in my, in my intro, you moved into some uh, pretty significant and important positions in, in big pharma um, and eventually to business development. So tell us about that. Uh, what inspired that transition toward kind of the business development side of, of biopharma? Yeah, it's a good question. I think when you, you know, when you think about it, sometimes it's not obvious, right? And I think um, Steve Jobs once said, sometimes to connect, to connect the thoughts, you've got to look backwards. I think when I kind of think about my life and my career, I think um, the main sort of thoughts were first, um, an interest in science. I think um, as a kid, I, I used to sort of take things apart and try to kind of um, reassemble them and figure out how they worked. And so I just loved science from that perspective. That ultimately led me to uh, um, studying medicine and being a doctor, really, again, with the hope at the time of making an impact to patients. And so I was fortunate enough to um, have a you know clinical career and ultimately move into the biotech industry. I think, again, kind of just in hindsight, there was a entrepreneurial spirit within me that I, I didn't probably realize I had as a physician, but ultimately obviously kind of came out in kind of greater force. Um, and then also the realization that really to drive innovation and drive the direction of innovation, that whole business development piece um, really is a significant factor of what we do. And so being a life learner, I had the opportunity to pursue an MBA um, just around off my MD. And again, kind of, which ultimately led me to the position that I'm currently in. So very fortunate when I look back in hindsight. Yeah. Um, t- take us back to that sort of transitionary period when you uh, realized and decided to scratch that entrepreneurial itch. Um, was there was there fear? Was there any any sense of trepidation or risk aversion associated with that move? Yeah. It. it I, I think. Um, you know, just to get, you know, we'll probably dig into my background, but, you know, 
for me, studying medicine and becoming a doctor was a lifelong dream, right? Um, as you point out early on, it, it was never on the cards for someone like me to become a doctor. And so for me, the moment that I decided to leave essentially medicine and, and, and go into industry, I, I think my parents almost cried. You know, mm -hmm. my parents probably realized finally, um, you know, our second generation has actually made it. Uh, we've had challenges along the way. And now you're, you're basically jeopardizing all of that. Um, but for me, it was always, I think I've been somewhat of a risk taker in life. I think I've had somewhat sort of the, the courage to be able to pursue my own sort of um, dreams. Um, and I think kind of looking at it in hindsight, I, I've been extremely lucky that it's you know, all turned out extremely well in a way that I love doing what I do. And, and it's such a meaningful um, profession of what we do, essentially of developing drugs for patients. So not easy along the way. Um, but again, I, I think I feel fortunate of kind of landing where I am today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other element of risk that strikes me is, as I mentioned, you, you work for some, some very uh, significant companies and you had some significant roles within those companies. And those are roles where, you know, th those roles came with, uh, I'm sure, a, a nice, uh, comfortable, secure paycheck, a nice benefits package, a, a nice office. You could probably stay as long as you wanted to, but there's some degree of risk in, in leaving that big farm. I mean, you can, you can, to some degree, affect change and, and develop medicines uh, in those positions as well. But what was the, I guess, um, appeal of taking the reins uh, at a smaller, more nimble emerging biopharma company, as opposed to, you know, remaining in a more, a more comfortable and safe position in big bio? Yeah, no, I, I think I, I've had sort of some incredible memories um, of being at Pfizer, you know, Bauchanon, Biogen, I've made um, lifelong friendships. And so I've, I've learned a great deal. And I think everything I've learned along the way has helped me become the leader I, I ha have been in the, um, the biotech startup world. For me, there's, there's nothing more satisfying than actually building something from the ground upwards. I think the life sciences um, does allow those that are courageous enough to essentially be able to pioneer in, into spaces and to be able to rewrite ways of doing it, right? Um, just for example, I just kind of remember when I was at Nightstar, my first week, I was preparing for an IPO roadshow. And then I was also um, ordering power tools from Amazon to assemble my office desk. <laughs> so there's no facilities hotline there's no ticket you sort of submit to get somebody to build this it, it's you and you just got to do it and, and i love that I, I think that's part of my sort of philosophy in life uh, and my own sort of attitude just go after it and do it and so i think biotech really uh so you know serves those that have that sort of mindset really well yeah yeah. Well, I want to, I want to, I, I can't have a conversation with you knowing a little bit about your background without digging into you know, some of the foundational um, elements that make you who you are. You know, you just, we've, we've ascertained that uh, it wasn't written in the stars uh, the day that Twen Yong was born, that he was going to become an MD and, and lead a, an emerging biotech. Um, I spend a lot of time on this podcast and in my, in my, you know, other, other job as a writer for bioprocess online, uh, talking with people who, you know, maybe it wasn't written in the stars, but the pedigree was there. You know what I mean? Like they, they, they come from the family, uh, um, 
and 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 I, I guess I would say it's not not a particular surprise. Um, you mentioned your parents a minute ago. I want to ask you about them. So uh, and 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 kind of where their um, where that where they came from and how they got you where you are today. So first, tell me about your parents. What you know? You, you said your parents almost cried when you left uh, when you quit practicing medicine and moved into industry. Um, why, why is that? I, yeah, I come from sort of Asian parents, right? My parents are sort of Chinese. Um, I was born in Vietnam, and as, as you mentioned, um, I was a refugee in the Vietnam War. So my, my parents um, moved to, I guess, were born in Vietnam after my, my grandfather sort of left, and I guess he was probably the, the first pioneer, left about sort of 16 um, during one of the Chinese famines again. Um, this is probably the, the beginning um, for our generation in Vietnam, where they, um, you know, where he sort of fled and made a new life for himself. And so I think when we had moved from Vietnam to London, you know, we we lived a life of relative poverty. I think I, I lived in um, the projects I lived and, and studied in one of the most sort of deprived schools in inner city London. Mm-hmm. And so I think for us, uh, or refugees to potentially kind of see that way as escaping poverty and actually achieving uh, stability, where again during war-torn Vietnam, you know things were so hostile and uh, unstable. My parents basically decided to make the call that this it's it's now or never really. So in the middle of the night, they decided to sort of smuggle us out under the cover of darkness onto a boat. Um, and you know we had nothing but the back, the clothes on our backs, and really a dream of a better life. Uh, it, it sounds kind of cliche, but we were fortunate to survive that. We lived in the refugee camp for about a year, um, in, 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 in Indonesia actually. In Indonesia, okay. So we lived in a, a refugee camp for a year um, before moving to London. And I remember um, arriving, and none of us could speak a word of English. You know, we had to, and this was in the eighties where. You know, we had to endure racism. I think the council apartment that I lived at, or the um, the, we call it the projects here in the U.S., um, were you know tough. That there were drug addicts and drug dealers. I remember running up from school through the stairwell just to avoid that. It, you know, and kind of the, it still haunts me when I sort of see um, faces of drug addicts from that sort of stairwell. And so you, there's a there's an innate drive inside of you. I think I think there's the innate drive to be you know to be somebody. And I think for me, um, you know, the first piece is as Asian parents, your parents never tell you they're proud of you, no matter what you accomplish. Even if you win a Nobel Prize, if you become president, you know, if the, you could have done better there. And so I think that's a reverse psychology that I've always had to deal with, whereby my parents have always driven me, um, not that I actually needed that drive. But I think I actually saw that hint in my dad's eye, despite not ever telling me that he was proud of me when I graduated at medical school, that there was that immense sense of pride. Mm. And I think when I sort of told them that I'm leaving medicine to pursue a career in the pharmaceutical industry, you know, I exaggerate a little bit, but I think there was that, you know, what have we done here now? Um, It's a big risk. This is an unknown. Yeah. And it's funny as you know, as you kind of grow older and you kind of have that conversation with you know your parents and that sort of in an adult way, 
um, you know, and I spoke to him sort of recently where, you know, he kind of was worrying how you said, and, and parents, again, the funny thing is they always offer you advice, no matter how old they are, right? Yeah, no, no matter how, out, how old or how, or how smart. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, my, my dad, bless his heart, is telling me about the FDA and how to get drugs approved, knowing that I work in this sort of field. And I'm kind of, you know, and sort of just in a very kind of caring way. And I got the sense through that conversation. It was almost, you know, again, Asian parents will never kind of express that degree of emotion. But it's almost like, you did well, son. I'm glad I'm proud of what you've done. And I'm really proud of what you're doing um, for society here. So, you know, well done. So that to me meant a lot. When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations, like mRNA and cell and gene therapies, into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com backslash emerging biotech. Now, is is the um, I, is is the I guess reluctance to uh, demonstrate affection reciprocal? Because I'm wondering, as you're talking, Doctor Ong, I'm wondering if if you turn to your dad and say, "Dad, thanks for putting me in that boat. I I, I love you." Thanks for putting, you know, thanks for slipping out of there under the cover of darkness. I know it was a tough road, but it was the right thing to do. And, and the risk, I mean, it, it, it's, you know, the, the um, irony, if you will, of his risk aversion, uh, given the fact that he took that risk, that your parents took that risk, it, it's, it's not lost on me. Yeah, I think you, you'll see that a lot in, in, in sort of first, degree, uh, first generations of immigrants and refugees, right? I think there is that somewhat they've made, they've taken that big risk. But there's that need and yearning to have that stability and that stability for other generations. And so it is an irony. Um, it, it's tough. I, I think as a parent now, I've become a lot sort of more open. Um, I tell my to the children, I, I love them all the time. I hug them. It's a very different sort of culture. And, you know, to your point, the, the really funny thing was, again, I was texting my dad. Um, again, this was a while back. And I've never, to your point, it sounds strange, but I've actually never told my dad I, I loved him. Um, but then for one reason or another, and I think life is so short and precious, I texted back and I put, you know, I love you, dad. And so that was probably the first time I've ever told my dad that I loved him. But I, I felt it was important to do so just because, you know, how fragile life is. And I think you never get that um, opportunity. And so you you sh- you don't want to regret not having a chance to say that. And so anyway, I, I did that. Good. I'm glad you did that. And I'm sure it felt good. I'm sure it felt good to do oh, that. Yeah, for sure it did. But whether or not he ever chooses to admit it, it felt good for him to hear. I guarantee it. Um, how, tell me about the, the, the education though. Like I, so, you know, you, you don't speak the language you're going to school, I'm assuming, like from the get-go when you get to London, probably maybe not, you know, you're not going, not going to private school, I'm sure, not coming from private. So tell me about the, you know, your, your education, uh, you know, early on and, and when, um, when you realized that not only, you know, that, that you had 
both the interest uh, in in science, uh, but also the the ability. Like, when did it strike you that hey, you know, there's a there, there's a future here beyond undergrad, beyond um, you know, there, yeah. there's an opportunity down the road for me to you know to to make something of this. Yeah, I, I think um, we yeah we we moved to London, and I remember distinctly. Um, I learned to speak English with flashcards. And so these were magnetic flashcards. You would have to sort of slide through a machine and it would, it would have a picture of a cat and it would go cat, you know. Mm-hmm. And for me, I've always had that just natural curiosity. I've always been, as I mentioned, a life long learner. I didn't realize this at the time, but I would take things apart at home uh, and try to kind of whether it's just a ballpoint pen and trying to take it apart and sort of figure out, you know, one, how it works or try and whether I can um, sort of reinvent something with it. I think really that led to, again, an interest in science. And as, as I sort of started learning more about science and I started reading more about it, um, I, I think I just had this sort of... Um, innate sort of understanding around, you know, around sort of biology, the world around us. And so I, I was relatively quiet as a kid, where in classes, um, you know, when questions were asked, um, I always knew the answer and never kind of put my hand up. And I think the teacher started noticing and every time I was kind of called upon uh, when, you know, nobody knew the answer, I was able to sort of actually just, you know, provide the answers to that. And so despite um, again, going you know to school in a, in a city in London, I had some wonderful teachers that kind of one um, really sort of saw I, I think kind of glimpses of sort of talent, and really encouraged and nurtured it. And so again, you know, just to, despite being in a very deprived area, so I think teachers are an unsung sort of heroes, and I kind of owe a lot um, to them. Really, you know, being able to kind of inspire me and continue to encourage me on that sort of pursuit, and then ultimately it led to being the first. Um, person to go to medical school from my high school um i actually and it wasn't probably a, a very high bar but i actually achieved that the um the, the best grades in the history of the high school which mm. i think it was sort of stands at this stage but um again it's probably not a high bar but I, I think part of that really was that natural interest i think just driven by um uh, to teachers and i as i mentioned before my parents just again um you know, really encouraging education and kind of encouraging learning throughout. Did that encouragement come um, through sort of the, the realization that they didn't have those opportunities or were they, were, were your parents highly educated as well? No, my, my parents never went to college. I don't think they went to high school. Um, I think my father, again, um, was somewhat of a self-learner. I, I learned a lot through my father in terms of when he, you know, various things that he would sort of fix or make. And so I always sort of observed him um, fixing things. And, you know, I think I learned a lot from him doing that. So a really incredibly intelligent and smart man without that sort of formal education. But again, I think as immigrants and sort of um, refugees, I I think they see again an opportunity for education really to, you know, allow the next generation to kind of improve themselves. Um, so I, I think that's a common sort of um, cultural sort of doctrine amongst um, immigrants and something that, you know, that we feel um, really sort of precious now as parents as well for my own children. It's amazing. I mean, you know, it, it's almost sad to dwell on, I suppose. But if you think about the uh, this is completely off topic. But if you think about the <laughs> the um, 
the intellectual capacity, the potential in, in so many people who don't have opportunities to exercise that intellectual capacity and, and nurture it and let it grow. Um, You're abs absolutely right. Um, I was very fortunate. I, I kind of reflect back commonly, you know, as you point out, my, my kids go to a very different school to, to the school that I went. Um, but when I kind of remember some of my classmates, a lot of them were incredibly smart. Um, they didn't, they got lost along the way and didn't find the right path. Um, you know, again, I'm very sort of fortunate to be able to find that path, but to your point, um, not everybody had that opportunity. So it's, it's somewhat tragic. I think we're not able to support everybody um, along that range in society. Indeed. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So, I mean, amazing backstory. I do want to start reeling it back, uh, you know, back closer to, to present day, given our time constraints, but as you look at your your leadership of of ring now and i know it's you know your your leadership there is relatively young in in terms of the amount of time that you've been there um but how would you how would you sort of how would you say that your your background your backstory has contributed to your your leadership style your the culture that you're creating for the company the you know sense of uh, responsibility you have um, over its its people and its IP and its and its uh, go forward plan. Yeah, I, I think um, you know all of our journeys always shape us, right? I think for me, um, through my journey, I think and and this is part of our own kind of core values at Ring. One is audacity. Um, you know, despite being incredibly poor at the age of six, um, I had the audacity to dream and dream big. Um, I knew life would be very different for me as an adult. And, and I think it's that audacity that we carry through at Ring as a culture and as a, as a leader, it's to challenge and be bold about our challenges and beliefs and what we can accomplish. Um, what we're trying to achieve with an LA virus is, is potentially truly transformative. It's not easy. Uh, as you know, and you've done so many of these sort of podcasts within the biotech, it's not a straightforward path. Mm -hmm. And so I think the next step around that is resilience. Um, again, from my own sort of life journey, um, there's been many challenges. There's been a lot of hardships, but I think resilience plays a key factor in one, uh, being able to kind of overcome those hurdles and challenges and continue that journey. And I, I think that's also important to what we do in the biotech sort of industry. Um, you know, there's a lot of scientific challenges um, and data that kind of comes out and being kind of creative and, and being able to sort of address all of those issues. And then the last piece, I think really what I'm trying to build at Ring is really um, to kind of encourage and build out a, a diverse, rich organization. I think again, having endured, you know, in, in sort of early childhood sort of racism um, during the 80s, and really being really the, often the, the youngest non-white person in a room, um, I think that does have a profound impact on you. I think also having kind of um, a daughter um, really, again, kind of influences how your perception around sort of gender equality and diversity really play into organizations. So I think it, it's, you know, life has been lucky and unfortunate and good to me. And I think it's really about, you know, taking those journeys and really being able to incorporate those as a leader. And so that's really what I try to do day to day. As, as we started to, to kind of get into some of the, the challenges that, uh, that that Ring's working on, you mentioned um, Anello Vectors. Um, and to be honest with you, I've done a lot of these podcast interviews. I've talked with a lot of bio, biotech executives across a host of, of, of modalities. 
Um, th- this is this is this is new to me. So tell me about it. I mean, I, I want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too, too deep into the weeds, but I need to, I need to understand where this, uh, where this idea of Anello Vectors came from and, and why you and Ring latched onto it and think you can move the ball forward. Yeah. Anello Vectors are incredible. They have limitless potential. Um, so Anello Vectors come from Anello viruses. And so these are viruses that are commensal. Um, they're highly ubiquitous. So they're in all, in all of us. And these viruses have co-evolved and lived in harmony inside of humans for millions of years. And that evolution has led led them to have very specific traits. So they basically harbor inside different tissues of our bodies, allowing them to be tissue um, specific and tissue tropic. And then they basically have become immune privileged. So they evade our immune system. And this allows them to be essentially the ideal viral vector. So when we think about some of the limitations in terms of viral gene therapy, it's about lack of um, tropism, not having specific potency. It's the immunogenicity that arises, again, and the lack of ability to redose. And so essentially, um, Mother Nature has given us, uh, dealt us an extremely strong hand with Anello viruses. And what we've essentially done is to build a platform from that. And that's the analogy platform. And so the analogy platform consists of four different components. First, it's the Anelloscope, which is a highly powerful proprietary discovery engine. And so what we do is we are able to take human tissue, deep genomic sequence those for viruses, and using those genomic sequences, generate vectors from that. The next part of the platform is Screen. This is a high throughput testing um, component that allows us to test those Anello, um um, vectors that we generate. And then through that, there's a Nello design when we incorporate machine learning and the learnings from the data that we generate from a Nello screen. And then the last final piece is really a Nello bricks. So think of this as a modular construction where we're able to take those genomic sequences, generate capsids from that. And the really interesting piece of that is not only is it highly scalable, it's that it allows us to actually introduce different payloads and so introduce payload versatility inside those capsids. So we're able to package DNA, RNA, and potentially actually include conjugate peptides on the external surface as well. So being able to be a highly um, powerful delivery vehicle in addition to that tropism and redosability that we talked about earlier on. Mm-hmm. How much, if any, work had been done in the space around Anello viruses prior to prior to Ring and prior to Flagship's uh, investment in Ring? Is it, what, was it a popular area? It, this was a completely uncharted area. I think there's not a lot known about, first of all, the human virus, which, which are kind of, you know, the, the viruses that live in and amongst us. Mm-hmm. Um, flagship pioneering, uh, you know, really did a lot of uh, explorations in a number of different areas and hence the sort of pioneering aspect around that. But I think in regards to Ring, the exploration was really around the question of, you know, are, are these viruses essentially uh, commensal? And you know, if you take that commensalism, can we actually repurpose them in a, in a useful way? And so really from our discovery from early um, deep genomic sequencing work on blood transfusion, we are able to identify um, commensal viruses that were actually inadvertently transfused from one person to another. So transfusions have been going on for the last 200 years. And we typically don't screen for anelloviruses because, again, they're, they're not pathogenic. 
And so what we identified from that study, and this is published in the cell paper, was really the fact that you can transfuse the nanovirus between a donor and a recipient. When you do that transfusion, those viruses actually persist. So the, the, the immune system of the recipient isn't kicking in and eliminating those viruses. And then lastly, we were able to identify um, in certain donors and recipients, there was a high degree of sequence homology between the anelloviruses that were being don um, donated to the recipient, meaning that there was almost a redosing of the same virus to the recipient. And so in some ways, inadvertently, this study has almost been done where we've been able to demonstrate safety and the potential ability to redose in a way that allows these anelloviruses or vectors to be persistent. And that's that's the basically the data that um, led to the, the, the foundation of Ring in 2017. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. So si since that time, um, ha has the space beyond Ring developed? Are there competitive sets that are looking at the same technologies, the same science, and, and looking to develop therapeutics around them? Not that we're aware of. Ring is the first and only company that is pioneering, you know, a, a new class of viral vectors using anelloviruses. Um, you know, we've established quite substantial IP around this. Our foundational IP actually covers the vectorization of anelloviruses. And so, you know, in, in this field, IP obviously is a significant sort of factor. I think the other aspect around this is really pioneering the knowledge around anelloviruses. So if you look in the literature, there's not much published in this space. I think, you know, the cell paper was for us somewhat of a landmark paper to start um, really sharing our scientific understanding around anelloviruses. We've continued to build out that understanding um, really through understanding the virology, um, the structure and really, you know, how it sort of evades the immune system. And so that's something we plan to publish in due course. And so, you know, stay tuned in regards to that. Excellent. Um, so we talked about some of the challenges and I, I, I'd invite you to go a little deeper on, on how, uh, how um, commensal viruses eliminate some of the challenges we mentioned. Um, we talked about some of those challenges that it overcomes, uh, but surely there are, given it's a new discovery, there, there are certainly some challenges around developing it as well. So I guess I want to, I want to dig into that a little bit and understand like what, what the biggest, the cha biggest challenge that you face as a company right now from a, from a biologic development standpoint um, to move the ball downfield. Yeah. I think it's a double-edged sword when, when you're pioneers in the field I think in terms of obviously the benefits is having that proprietary knowledge that you generate and the IP that you generate. I think on the flip side is that there's very little known in the space. And so I think in terms of just the actual virus itself, the, the viral biology aspect around it, um, how it replicates, how we're able to harness some of the um, biological sort of components around the viruses um, really there's no rule book to that. Mm -hmm. I think to some extent, you know, there are things we can learn from AAV, but this is a completely different virus to AAV. Um, and in a way, I think some of the, um, some of the things that encumber um, AAV may not actually apply to another viruses, right? And so that's really why there's truly a transformative potential from that. And so I, mean, I think that challenge um, really has allowed us to step up. And what we've done at Ring is to build a world-class organization of 
case um, experts in viral biology, genomics, synthetic biology, machine learning, manufacturing, um, really to kind of get a better understanding around the nanoviruses. How do we build a platform around that? How we're able to understand the genomic sequence, the DNA of the virus itself? And then how do we basically be able to um, harness and capitalize on that learning to be able to vectorize it and really be able to introduce sort of different payloads within that. And so that's really what we've been um, doing. And I think a big part of that comes from building a world-class team. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where are you sort of on that? On that how, how many employees are there now? Right? So we're just over a hundred employees um, um, as of sort of um, January. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what, what does the company look like in terms of day-to-day activity? Do, do you look like a, like a, a, a discovery company, a pre-IND company, a company that's getting ready to take something toward the clinic? Like, how would you sort of characterize the day-to-day uh, activity there? Day-to-day, high-energy, passionate sort of group of individuals. I think what we've been focused on is um, building out the platform, validating the components of the platform, um, and really advancing the data. And so I think some of the data sets that I mentioned in regards to in vivo, in vitro um, data, well, we'll be sort of looking to publish in due course and share that with both um, the scientific as well as the biotech industry. And then really can continue to advance the pipeline, um, advancing those candidates that, you know, near term, we're looking to doing IND enabling studies and then looking forward to being in the clinic soon. Uh, tell me about those those candidates. What indications do you anticipate pursuing? So we're focused on, again, as I mentioned before, just building out the platform. I think when you look at the Nello viruses, there's a, there's a somewhat, and I, I, you know, I often sort of say this, there's a bit of an embarrassment of riches, right? There's not much that Nello viruses can't do in terms of just as a class of viral vectors. And so when you look at just tissue tropism and the diseases and tissues that it can target, um, again, a, a vast degree of opportunity. I think the other piece that we are just trying to get our hands and wrapping our arms around is really the payload versatility. As I mentioned, as we generate these capsids, we can introduce DNA, RNA, and you know external sort of peptides on those um, viral-like particles. And that allows us, again, to address multiple diseases through multiple modalities as well. And so really it's a it's a it's a challenging conundrum um, to be able to one, you know, continue obviously building that platform, but really the expansive opportunities we have. Um, and so we'll be able to sort of share that in due course. Um, but I'm looking forward to, you know, getting to the point where, you know, we can definitely share that uh, in more detail. Yeah, yeah. Well, me too. It's uh it it's it's exciting to follow and uh it will be it'll be cool to know that when the time is right. I you know, at the at this particular juncture of the company, um, it occurs to me that perhaps uh, out licensing the technology or partnership uh, would be potential avenues you, you might go right. Like, do you have any any thoughts around um, you know <laughs> that you can share that is? And I understand if you can't, uh, but do you have any any thoughts? You know, a, as the company's leader, uh, setting the course, kind of setting a vision. Uh, where you want to be versus what any number of opportunities could take you off course. But do, do you want to become a therapeutics company? Do you want to become a, a platform that uh, that works with with other uh, cell and gene uh, therapeutics companies? Um, all of the above. 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, as a flagship pioneering company, we're a block bio platform company. Um, I think, as I mentioned before, we, we have an embarrassment of riches. Um, the another vector is a highly a powerful um, platform in both in terms of its properties for tropism, redosability, but also in terms of what it can deliver in terms of modalities and the address the diseases it, it can address. Uh, I, you know, I've always been front and center, a, a you know, a physician, a drug developer, and really someone that wants to innovate uh, therapeutics to patients. I don't think we can address all of the diseases on our own at Ring. You know, we're somewhat of a small company. And I think there's a lot of um, strategic partnerships that we can um, establish within, you know, this great sort of ecosystem that we have. And so that allows us to, one, continue innovating both our platform, being able to innovate therapeutics to patients and having more therapeutics towards those patients. Um, but, you know, still retain a lot of um, shareholder value and still retain value as well as proprietary knowledge within Ring that we can continue um, developing our own programs within the platform as well for. Yeah, yeah, very cool. This embarrassment of riches that you've referred to a couple of times, just just give me a little bit of flavor as to, I mean, I understand that, uh, as, as you said, there aren't necessarily any other players that are in the space right now. Uh, there weren't prior to Ring. Why is that? I mean, is, is, was it just a flat out recent recent discovery that there's potential here? Or were there... In a lot of cases, we talk about uh, over the course of history, um, vectors or modalities or therapeutics that struggled for a long time before they hit. Was that the case? Were there attempts that failed previously? Uh, just give us a little bit of the backstory on that. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the human virome is a really undiscovered and untapped area. There's very little known about the human virome, right? And so commensal viruses uh, come from that sort of ecosystem, which, which we call the, uh, the human virome. And then typically when you're looking at the whole field of virology, people study viruses that cause disease, you know, pandemic kind of case in point, look at the amount of uh, research, um, obviously for good cause that's mm -hmm. come out from this pandemic. But that focus has really been trying to attribute the virus to a disease. And so when you come across a commensal virus, there's very little interest in, you know, in, in studying it. And so I think um, Flagship was very astute in following that up in regards to, look, um, these are somewhat non-pathogenic, but then again, you know, potentially could we harness these for any other sort of useful purpose to deliver therapeutics? And so that led to some of the explorations that we did at Flagship Pioneering and ultimately the build of the analogy platform to be able to harness those uh, viruses inside of our bodies and really, again, being able to innovate on the nature inside of our bodies to create a new class of viral vectors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, we're starting to run short on time here, Dr. Ong. So I'm going to ask you a couple uh, wrap-up questions. Um, what's next? What's what's the next big thing on Dr. Ong's agenda? Um, I've been... I've been, I always kind of say, I, I, I've been more blessed than I probably deserve to be. I, I don't know what I've done to be this fortunate, both in life and, you know, with the family that I have. So for me, it's about paying forward. Mm. It's about, you know, building um, a diverse, rich organization at Ring Therapeutics. It's about being able to take Anello Vectors 
and really being able to innovate and, and hopefully transform humanity um, in a way that's meaningful. So that that's really my focus. Yeah. Um, any specific or profound uh, advice for other young biotech entrepreneurs, uh, folks who are trying to make a go of this? That's a that's a difficult one. Um, I guess when I set out to do this, I didn't realize that I would in fact potentially be a, a role model. And it's funny that you know people have reached out to me and, and um, you know sh- shared how my journey has inspired them. I think partly because that they see themselves as potentially being you know a minority and leader in the um, the biotech field. So I, I think my first advice would be. Um, don't let people judge you um, and, you know, chart your own course. I think my other sort of advice would be process and reflect. I think, you know, what we do is challenging. Um, there's a lot in terms of our day-to-day and I think kind of taking time out uh, really to be able to reflect. Um, sometimes not all the answers kind of come together all at once. Um, and, I, and I think sometimes just having that time during this kind of the chaos that kind of occurs around us uh, really allows us to kind of get to the final answer. Yeah. That's uh, definitely profound advice. And I think um, I got to tell you, I've, we've done a lot of podcast episodes and this is the first time I've covered racism, immigration, the love between a father and a son, plus, plus the science and the business. (laughs) So I want to, I mean, I was just reflecting on this. Uh, we covered a lot of ground today and it's I want to, I want to thank you for your, your transparency. No, it's been a pleasure. No, my pleasure. I, I feel I think, like, uh, I think it, I think kind of, I think my journey has been challenging for my, for myself in a way where, um, I think in the beginning, it was somewhat of a source of shame. I think that what I've learned is that it, it's a source of strength. I'm glad and proud that now it's in, inspired others like me. Um, and I want to be able to use my voice. And so, you know, I, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to share my voice and, you know, hopefully inspire others to do so. Um, that's something that I've had to kind of, you know, grow and develop. And so I appreciate that opportunity. Yeah, well, and inspiring it is. And I appreciate you for, for sharing that story. Yeah, thank you. So that's Ring Therapeutics CEO, Dr. Twen Ong. I'm Matt Pillar, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva, which demonstrates its commitment to new and emerging biotech companies at its virtual biotech accelerator, which you can find at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. Please give that a look, then go to bioprocessonline.com, where I encourage you to subscribe to my newsletter. And if you like listening in on conversations with biopharma industry luminaries and inspirations like Dr. Ong, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thanks for listening.